Hey everyone, this is Craig Horlbeck from the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. Join me, Danny Heifetz, and Danny Kelly every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to help you win your draft, win your league, and most importantly, avoid that last place punishment. Follow the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. David? The University of Colorado football team was awful last year. They went 1-11. Will enter Coach Prime, otherwise known as Deion Sanders. He comes from Jackson State. He pulls the lever on the transfer portal like it's never been pulled before. There are 86, yes, 86 new players on the Colorado roster. Only 10 players left from pre-Dion Colorado. Mm-hmm. And CU football, which no network cared about <laughs> at all, became a content machine. See, for me, Colorado football is perpetually stuck as like the 1990, what was it? Six, 97 Bill Walsh college football video game edition with Cordell Stewart as the running back. You could just run the option, just run around the line every single time and do the halfback toss. If that man, that was great for a guy that didn't know how to play a video game. The, the team was supreme, but yeah, um, nobody cared about this team. Deion Sanders goes there and now people care. It's almost as if people care. And I'm speaking to the sports media here. Mm. Pe- the, people are upset that they're obligated to care. They're upset they're obligated to care or they're well, like, hello, they, hello, new content opportunity. Well, I think it's a huge content opportunity, but there does seem to be a lot of just noise around it, like friction around it. Like, like we know this is content and there's a slight and we know it's going to be great for us, but there's a slight resentment that like Deion Sanders figured out the one neat trick to get all the attention on your college football team. Right. Yes, it did solve a very big problem for reporters and networks alike on week one. Because other than LSU, FSU on Sunday night, week one was terrible. Mm -hmm. So Colorado, which is a hypothetically interesting football team going on the road to play ranked TCU, offered a solution. Hey, we got something to watch. Yeah. At noon Eastern. Dion did a pregame interview with Troy Aikman for college game day. Mm -hmm. 
He did an interview with Aaron Andrews for Fox. This is NFL-style treatment here. Yeah. Nobody thought Colorado was actually going to win this game. They're 21-point underdogs. Mm -hmm. This was the rare, genuine, nobody believed in us that was real. (laughs) Yeah. This, This may be the first time that has ever been real, in fact. Then what happens, David, when the game starts? Deion's son, Shadur, goes out and throws for 500 yards. Travis Hunter, who was this number one overall high school recruit a few years ago, played both offense and defense in the game and was awesome. You know Colorado is now a content machine because Deion Sanders managed to even make the obligatory halftime interview interesting. Oh, yeah. Travis Hunter has advertised over 60 snaps. How do you keep him fresh in the second? He, he is him. We missed him on two deep balls. He get those two deep balls. He, the husband is at his crib chilling right now. God bless. Thanks, coach. <laughs> Every coach should guarantee the, the Heisman to one of their players before halftime. Love Otherwise, it. just walk to the locker room. I don't need to hear from you. Colorado beat TCU 45-42. Whoa. <laughs> we don't feel obligated to cover it anymore. This is now a huge story. Yeah. Then came the post-game presser where we found out, David, that Dion was taking this nobody-believed-in-us storyline fairly seriously, and he had uh, some thoughts on a reporter who he said was one of the doubters. What's up, boss? You believe now? You, you, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, no. Do you believe now? Huh? Oh, no, no, no. I read through that bull junk you wrote. I, I read through that. I sipped it through all that. Yeah. Oh, no. Come on. Do you believe? You don't believe. You just answered it. You don't believe. Next question. I have three observations about that press conference. One, how much do you love the word bull junk? <laughs> I'm not worried about showing up a reporter in front of all of his peers, but I insist on saying bull junk. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody from the wrestling world ever called something you wrote or said bull junk? No, I wish they had. I would take that as a badge of courage. Uh, Yes, I I think that for Ed Werder, for maybe for every reporter that's interacted with Deion Sanders, this has to be one of those moments where you realize he's never read anything that he claims to have read. You know, <laughs> anytime he said something nice about something you wrote, he's like, oh, you've been really good the past few months. He's just saying a thing. But that's great. That's probably what every interaction with someone on his level is like. Can we stop and underline that Ed Werder, television reporter for ESPN? <laughs> he sifted through it. Ed, Ed has not been writing a ton of copies since he was covering the Cowboys for the Dallas Morning News back in the 90s. But Deion Sanders read something he wrote, read some bull junk. Ed did cover Dion back in the 90s, so I'm wondering, yeah. maybe Familiar Dion's face. not reading something now, but maybe during his playing days. Yeah. He's still got a clip on the fridge <laughs> by Ed Word that he's projecting from. More seriously, and this is my third observation, Deion Sanders is not the first coach to be a big jerk to a reporter in a post-game press conference. Mm-hmm. It's sort of rare after a win <laughs> that you would do that. But if I were Werder or anybody sitting in that press room, I think what would bother me the most is not that, but the fact that he wouldn't answer my question. Yeah. Like, you want to go after me? Okay. 
that's fine, but I'm going to go write something. I'm going to write whatever I want. Mm-hmm. That's not going to be approved by you. And you need to answer my question to help me write that. Yeah. Like that, that, that is kind of part of the deal here. Yes. And yeah. the whole, do you believe, oh, you don't not, not next question. I don't know if that would work for me. Well, you know, Dan gets to ask questions too. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of content, Fox's big noon kickoff show and A announcing team is going to be at Colorado, Nebraska next week. Yeah. We're riding this thing. This month, Colorado is playing at Oregon and at home against USC. More Coach Prime content machine to come. Oh, of course. A couple of short things for you about college football. Very rough day for Gus Johnson, who called that game, TCU Colorado on Saturday. This has been the case for a few years where there are long stretches of games where Gus is just not seeing the field very well, or his spotter isn't seeing the field very well, because there'd be a fumble and everybody on the defense is pointing this way, and it's just not acknowledged on the broadcast. Right. But the interesting riddle of Gus Johnson is there are these mistakes, and there were a bunch of them in the first half TCU Colorado and then the game got really close and exciting at the end yeah and it's not that simple right because you're like who would you rather have calling this game right now than Gus Johnson nobody who can acknowledge the nuttiness and the excitement of a college football game that suddenly perks up right at the end but you think minus the ending you would be you would be be calling for his job um it's funny because I think he's always been a little bit of a Twitter favorite. Yeah. Going back to his well, I mean, days he, calling that's NCAA on, on, basketball on, on, games. Tw- on Twitter, that's, those are the moments that you're paying attention to, right? The ones where he's in his, at, at his peak. Those are the moments. Uh, it's funny. Awful announcing sort of started cataloging the miscues. Mm-hmm. And I think that got the machine revved up. And college football oh. fans don't need much to be prodded. And they're right, by the way. And it's been happening for a bunch of years now. Yeah, it's just kind of gotten glossed over because, again, he'll have moments in the fourth quarter where the game is berserk. He is matching the energy of the game and everybody's like, this is great. Maybe he should just be a closer. (laughs) Kind of a fireman, Major League Baseball style style reliever. Yeah, just have him just 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 pop into the booth when the game gets good, when 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 it gets tight at the end. I curse the uh, Saturday night football team, which Uh is. ESPN's A team. I said, this is the best produced game ESPN puts out there. NBA finals and all. Here we go, baby. Guess what? Fourth quarter starts FSU LSU. There's a huge interception, and they are caught in a sideline reporter interview with the coach. <laughs> so we got the split screen going on, and we're watching this enormous play going back the other way, and we are still interviewing the coach. My apologies. To the ESPN A crew. I will never, ever tweet about you again. The other big surprise of the weekend, David, came from Sean McDonough, also of ESPN ABC. He was doing a game near and dear to your heart, North Carolina versus South Carolina. Mm-hmm. The Battle of the Carolinas, won by the Tar Heels. Tar Heels have a receiver named Tez Walker who transferred from Kent State and was ruled ineligible by the NCAA, at least for mm-hmm. game one. The obvious question being, are we still doing this? Yes, we are still doing this, at least in some cases. Here is 
Sean McDonough expressing his opinion in a way you might not hear an announcer do it very often. Posted a letter that he wrote to Charlie Baker, the new president of the NCAA, on Instagram. Very emotional, very heartfelt, imploring Charlie Baker to do the right thing. And again, I know there's a process, but if Charlie Baker has that kind of power, please do the right thing. Charlie Baker was our governor in Massachusetts. He was very well liked. I don't mean to make this political at all. He's a smart guy. You know, part of what he needs to do is clean up nonsense like this that's happened for decades at the NCAA. Somebody please do something. His grandmother had never seen him play in person. They were all hoping that was going to happen tonight. Shame on the NCAA. This is the broadcast of an NCAA football game. <laughs> I'll remind you. Usually wow. when Sean McDonough talks like that, it's about the refs. Yeah. I love there was like, like a Texas Georgia game a couple years ago and the refs were calling this penalty in the fourth quarter and we're just having this conversation that went on forever even though the game was over and I remember Sean McDonough just goes please stop talking <laughs> well I guess if you need proof that the NCAA is, uh, is uh, losing power steadily to you know the conferences to the players to just the professional sports world at large. That, that's your proof right there. Because that, if that had happened in an NFL game or even an NBA game, Sean McDonough oh would be... <laughs> he would, would be, be frog marched out of the... Yeah, worse than Jeff Van Gundy. <laughs> he would be out of here. It's where you realize that the NCAA, and again, it's a little different, right? Because the conferences are making deals with the networks rather than the NCAA as a mm -hmm. governing body. So there's less like an Adam Silver figure that you need to please, at least in quite the same way. But you just realize that the NCAA might be the single juiciest, safest target in America. Oh, yeah, because they're just like, you know, like the hall monitors out there, you know, like no, they don't have a constituency. There is no pro. There is no pro NCAA constituency. No, like Scott Sternberg was uh, one of our listeners was asking us to talk about this. I'm like, dude, I've been on message boards for 20 years. Everybody hates the NCAA. They may disagree why they hate the NCAA. It may be, hey, they're letting all the teams cheat or, oh, wait, they need to pay the players, whatever it is. But anyway, good on Sean McDonough because you don't see an announcer say it in quite those terms. No nope. broadcast. Coming up on today's pod, David, political reporters have hit a campaign lull that makes Ron DeSantis's lull look mild. What happened? An announcing booth preview of the NFL season, an Elon Musk mega book and how journos treated Jimmy Buffett and Taylor Swift. All that and much more on the Press Box, a part of The Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, and producer Eduardo Ocampo, who's sitting in for Erica here. David, I have a report from the campaign trail. There's a little bit of restlessness, I detect. <laughs> Among yeah. political reporters. Mm. <laughs> On the one hand, in every story they write, and unlike Edward, they are writing stories every week, they get to describe the events as historic, quote unquote. Former president, been indicted four times. On the other hand, there's been no horse race now for a month. Mm -hmm. And there's no single story at least at the moment that reporters can credibly point to and say, here's why we're not cruising toward a Trump Biden rematch. Right. 
we're in a period that reporters might call the what do we cover now campaign. Mm-hmm. I want you to consider some of the news cycles over the last week and change. After the first GOP debate, we had a who is Vivek Ramaswamy news cycle. Mm-hmm. I remember like six days after the debate, I read a Michelle Goldberg column in the New York Times like, okay, okay, I know who Vivek Ramaswamy is. <laughs> Question has been answered to my satisfaction. Then we had a related but separate Vivek Ramaswamy fact check news cycle. <laughs> the people were paying a little more attention to what he was actually saying on the trail. Mm-hmm. By last Thursday, we had gotten to Tim Scott isn't married and Republican donors are worried. Yes. That was an actual mini news cycle. And over Labor Day weekend, I saw political reporters trying to make this work. Mike Pence to give major speech. <laughs> Mike Pence is at 4.2%. The, the major the major speech story even <laughs> even when it, even when it's about even when it's like a real prime candidate, you know, yes. if, if it's the the party nominee is always just a junk story. It's always a junk story. And his story is about his speech, excuse me, is about conservatism versus populism. Reaganism versus Trumpism which was a big think piece after he and Ramaswamy got into it at the debate. Folks, that's been the think piece since 2016 when Donald Trump started running for president. And it's over, too. The the contest. Populism won. Yeah. Well, I mean, the speech itself is meaningless once you sort of leak the, you know, you leak the, 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 the script to the, to the reporter or whatever. The speech is so secondary. Nobody's watching it. They're just reading the pieces about it. That's why they do the speech so that people report on it. But it's a sort of like, you know, this meeting could have been an email in, of, of, of the campaign variety or this, you know, this email, could, this email should have been a Twitter thread. Yeah. Mike Pence's campaign could have been an email. I think is <laughs> what you're getting at. Here's a challenge for political reporters. The polls have not moved in a month. Trump is at or above 50 percent. Mm-hmm. DeSantis is at 15 or thereabouts. Everybody else below 10. It's somewhat closer in Iowa, but Trump still has a pretty big lead. There is no Democratic primary, despite the efforts of RFK Jr. and this Minnesota guy, Dean Phillips, to try to get one going. If we're doing uh, shameless horse race journalism here, how many pages in the Game Change 2024 book do you think will be devoted to Dean Phillips (laughs) deciding whether he wants to challenge Biden for the Democratic nomination? We get a whole chapter on Dean Phillips. I'm thinking no, just the mini section within the chapter <laughs> for the page break. The other problem for political reporters, David, is that the two front runners are not campaigning. Yeah, and I mean not campaigning at all. Joe Biden went to a Labor Day parade in your neck of the woods, Philly. Mm-hmm. But do you want to guess? How many campaign rallies he has had since announcing he was running four months ago? Oh, let me guess. Is it none? None is an excellent guess. The answer is one. Uh, You basically had two guesses here, one or none. He has had one rally. That's according to the AP's Jill Colvin and Will Weissert. Do you want to guess how many times Donald Trump has campaigned since August 12th? Since August 12th? Oh, so it's in the it's less than a month. Uh, 
Remember, two guesses, two possible guesses. I know. Is it one also? It is one. Okay, good. Oh, no, sorry. It's not. It's not. Oh, dang. I thought I'd seen him. I'm zero. I'm 0 for 2. That's terrible. <laughs> You'll be better just... on the headline later, I think. Plus, of course, Donald Trump skipped the first debate and is probably going to skip more, including the one that's in SoCal later this month. Mm-hmm. Now, a reader, David, a particularly, you know, enlightened reader might say, well, this is good. We're not doing any of this BS horse race coverage. I want to read about policy. I don't want to read about polls. To which my answer is bullshit. You want to read about polls. You want to read about who's up and who's down. And number two, it's obviously such a false choice. Mm-hmm. It's a classic. The media isn't covering. Go out on the interwebs. You will find tons of writing about what the candidates are actually proposing and what they believe in. Yeah. Dave Weigel at Semaphore is doing it by himself. Plenty of things to read about that. Horse race coverage is one of those things where it always gets beat up. But at the same time, as Jack Schaefer wrote this in a column several years ago, the candidates are trying to win. Yeah. They're not trying to have well, the best kind of policy papers. Well, okay. Let's for 2024, let's put the asterisk on that, right? The candidates who are not trying to become Trump's veep or a conservative thought leader are trying to win. Yeah. Is that fair enough? Yeah. I mean, in, in, theoretically, yes. The point is that you're trying to win the race. And that's, it, it's, it, yeah, it, it doesn't leave a lot to cover when the poll numbers, like you said, are so static. Uh, and there's probably a million reasons for it. But I think just having two institutional figures at the top just leads to a lot less of the sort of sometimes incredibly meaningless noise that polls, especially yeah. like state polls have. Um, there's just no room for a Ramaswamy news cycle beyond the first one. If he's not, if you know, we, if we're not seeing him like miraculously get to like 12% in Iowa or something like that, right? I mean, it's, if everything's just so static, then what are you going to write about? There's a, there, there's an, an inevitability to it. There's an inevitability. And if you, even if you have like Tim Scott is surging in Iowa, that opens the door for policy stories. Mm-hmm. Tim Scott's appeals to evangelicals, Tim Scott's position on abortion. Why is it resonating? And then you go off from there, but it's hard for journalists to do this when there are not meaningful changes, or in this case, changes at all in the larger polling picture. Again, that might sound like it's, you know, Oh, well, we should be, we should be writing about the important things, folks. That's how a lot of campaign journalism works. Mm-hmm. You need that day to day. You need at least the appearance of doubt that the inevitable is not in fact inevitable. Yeah. Second part of the story is haven't we just assumed that the job of political reporter is one of endless, crazy changing content over the last seven years? Oh, has that just become the, the expectation? Yeah. Yeah, it it's, has, it's, right? a, it's 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 a I mean it's it's about it's it's reactive, right? I mean, you have to have something to cover. Um but yeah, it's and it's incredibly unusual in the in the political sphere that you'd be out that you have to like search out the story, you know? I mean, it just it's it's in especially in the Trump years just like served up to you in a silver platter. If you just sat at your computer and read Twitter, you would have lots to write about and talk about. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And you almost forget that a journalist's 
output is to some extent dictated by events. You can go find news. You can be clever. You can come up with great angles. You can go report certainly on things that nobody is, nobody else is reporting about. But to some extent, your your output is going to be tied to what happens. Mm-hmm. And again, the big asterisk here is this will almost certainly change at some point. Even if it doesn't change, Donald Trump is going to be on trial in March. And the world of political journalism, or at least campaign journalism, will suddenly get very busy. Well, yeah. I mean, there seems to be this question mark about to what degree we cover Trump. Um, whether or not, you know, his his political or his his legal issues, Trump, I guess, pun, pun intended, his campaigning. Um, but it's not. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I mean, and, and, and it's, it's a holding pattern. You know, until we actually have a nominee. If he were the nominee in, in, in the, you know, in this exact time of year, and there there would there be, I think, a different sort of coverage. But it's this sort of it's the lack of, you know, there's no we don't know what's gonna happen, even though we all know it's gonna happen. That's what creates the paralysis. Again, it's fairly unique to me that he's not on the campaign trail making news. Yeah. And both candidates, I mean both the, you know, both Trump and Biden are, you know, just happy to just fast forward just to like you know hold serve until until primary season's over and that creates an incredibly weird dynamic if it is trump and biden next year this campaign could have a really interesting dynamic where trump is limited in campaigning because of his legal woes mm-hmm. that he physically has to be in a courtroom and biden is limited in campaigning by his desire not to go out on the stump and talk a bunch yeah and he runs a version of his 2020 COVID campaign where his events are very, very limited, mm-hmm. leaves a lot of it to surrogates. And you could have like Nixon in 72 running the campaign from the Rose Garden, except it would be both candidates. Yeah. Which would be an interesting challenge for reporters. Coming up in 30 seconds, some notes on the NFL TV season, which starts Thursday night, is a Romo is great again, news cycle inevitable. But first, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the Press Box Pod, where they are always gratefully received. We got a bunch of submissions this week. Runners-up include the news story, David, that the Miami Dolphins cut wide receiver Chosen Anderson. Mm-hmm. It's an overworked Twitter joke to say that Chosen was not. Thanks to Ben Axelrod for that. The entertainment world today, David, is mourning the death of Smash Mouth lead singer Steve Harwell. Mm. It's an overworked Twitter joke to write, damn, I guess the years do stop coming. Thanks to Dr. Brad Reinfeld for that one. Speaking of entertainment, Hollywood is mourning the death of Weekend at Bernie's screenwriter Robert Klain. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, well... I guess his family has one option now, thanks to Scott Tobias. But this week's winner, any joke involving the people stuck in the mud at Burning Man and Kendall Roy. For example, I can't stop the intrusive vision in my head of Roman and Kendall Roy screaming into iPhones, trying to get out of a mudlogged Burning Man. (laughs) Thanks to Matthew Zeitlin. If you have an idea for the Succession Christmas special, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. 
Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. All right, let's talk NFL announcing booths. CBS is the Super Bowl network this year. And I was talking to Richard Deitch. Richard on the more positive Tony Romo is cool side of things. Me on the, eh, are we sure Tony Romo doesn't have some big flaws in his game side of things? <laughs> and Richard pointed out something that I thought was really funny. There was a huge Romo backlash last year on Twitter. Again, probably something that was coming was certainly the fuse was lit by people watching him call big AFC playoff games and being like, eh, is he great or is he just kind of getting excited Yeah, about football? Richard said, aren't we pretty sure that the Romo is back angle is going to be the story of 2023? Huh. Well, I'm not sure how gone how how is gone the opposite of back in this in this usage. <laughs> I'm not sure how I'm not sure how much he has to get back from. Um because you know, we talk about him a lot on the show. People sure. like us talk about him a lot, but like we always say, like the goal of this job is to become an institution, to become 75% invisible, just or like not invisible, but part of the fabric of the broadcast. Yes. Um, but yeah, 
sure. Let's go with Romo's back. I more engaged, more excited. This is exactly yeah. what we need. He prepped harder. Yeah. You could see that being part of it. He's putting in the work, putting in the reps. I've always thought that, as they say in wrestling, that he is a top guy. Mm-hmm. That's never been an out of me. It's not like Tony Romo is going to get fired. It's just that he's one announcer if Patrick Mahomes and Joe Burrow are throwing 60-yard touchdown passes on alternating drives, and he's another announcer if the game is like 20 to 10. Mm-hmm. And he sort of powers down a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's also, listen, uh, you know, armchair psychologist, et cetera, et cetera. But it does seem like a lot of what he does is is natural. I mean, it's it's he he's reacting in a very natural way. When something gets him going, he's right there. He's like, um, you know, it's like it's like, you know, Brett Favre when the fastball stopped working. Now, I'm really mixing metaphors here, but it's like, man, that weird that pass. I never thought about it for one second before in my life. And it always landed right in the bread box, you know, mm-hmm. and then suddenly it doesn't. And now you got to start thinking about it. It's like Tony Romo was just such a natural at it and is such a natural at it that sometimes when if the thoughts aren't popping into his head, I'm sure he's just like, well, I guess I just sit here then, right? I'm waiting for inspiration to strike. <laughs> if it comes a little bit less less often, less frequently, then then maybe it stands out a lot to the people that are watching because he's not trying to jam his, you know, just words in there. Totally. Or maybe there's not a bunch of alternate storylines written down on the spotter's boards in front of him. Yeah, exactly. If Patrick Mahomes is not great today, oh, what are we going to talk about? Oh, I don't have another place to go here to just take the audience yeah because but that's you know that's that's prep right i mean that that's 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 part of the work yeah when you say reactive it reminds me of when you hear a podcaster say i don't want to do an interview with this famous person i just want to have a conversation (laughs) which is code for i don't know what i'm going to ask (laughs) romo just wants to have a conversation on the broadcaster that's what it feels like sometimes another story this year it is year two of Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olson mm. as the top guys at Fox. Yeah. I was thinking about this over the weekend. Remember that at the beginning of last year? Joe Buck and Troy Aikman shockingly leave and go to ESPN and Monday Night Football. Yeah. Fox not only has to replace their top team, but it's a Super Bowl year. So yep. everybody's going to be watching those guys. Can we look back now with the distance of one year and say, wow, that worked out miraculously well? Oh, it really did. As well as it possibly could have. Mm-hmm. We not only introduced people to Olsen and Burkhart, but by the end of the year, people, including our boss, were like, these guys are great. These guys are top guys in the business. Yeah. I remember somebody saying something to me last year before the start of the season. And I, I'll always go back to this quote. They said, is an A team in broadcasting a measure of quality? Like you are one of the best play-by-play announcers or analysts on television? Mm-hmm. Or is an A team what we tell them an A team is? Meaning the viewers. And I think the it's answer, both, right? It's both, Right. But I think also, and and Olsen and Burkhart both did a fantastic job last year. Burkhart was already great, and I thought Olsen took a big jump over the course of the season and just got better and better. But there is something about, like, Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olsen are calling the NFC Championship game. 
that makes them, in addition to how good they are, an A team broad, an A team. They're calling the Super Bowl. Ah, yeah. In my mind, watching television, they're now an A team. Well, they were the A team, you know, on Fox before that. You know, there's a little bit of an institutional like. Like sometimes we take quality for granted because people are put in the position. I mean, because we think that, that that determination has been made before they get on the air. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's like it's like does is it is a you go to a restaurant? Is like is a delicious cheeseburger the, the the is it is it the chef or is it the cleanliness of the restaurant? It's like well, the cleanliness of the restaurant was factored in, but you know that's why it's able to open its doors every morning, right? It gets inspected, but you know it's it, it yeah, you give all the credit to the chef. Yes. Or and the goes, burger. I don't know it, which one works here. Yeah, but it, but it goes back to the to what we're talking about, Romo. Like, there's no scoreboard for these guys. You know, at the end at the end of a game, it's not like Kevin Burkhardt and Greg Olson, according to PFF, graded out at 97.2% for their call at the game. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly subjective. Some of it is vibes. I'd like to think you can watch a game and actually understand the quality of what these guys do. But mm-hmm. when I look at what, what happens with viewers and Twitter sort of institutionally, it often feels like it's very random mm-hmm. and it coalesces, but it coalesces around big moments. Everybody's watching the NFC championship game, which by the way, last year they had to do some heavy lifting. If you remember Eagles versus Brock Purdy's arm that didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. That was not a great draw for an announcer. Third thought on the NFL season is Monday Night Football's new producer director. That is a broadcast that has production-wise, I think, lagged behind certainly Sunday Night Football on Fox. Yeah, Production is also often really hard to explain to people. And my, mm-hmm. my way to explain it to people is watch the game and see if you're seeing the things that you think you should be seeing mm-hmm. is the right replay coming up. Are there angles and replays you never thought the broadcast would give you? Yeah. Does it intuitively feel like they're covering the game and telling you the story of the game? Or do you feel like you're lost a little bit mm-hmm. and you don't know what's happening and sort of allow yourself to tune out the announcers and just think about the pictures. That's good producing. Right before the, uh, I cursed them, the ESPN, a college football team, there was a great play where an LSU receiver was running down the sideline and like seconds after the play's over, they show this guy's heel being perched right above the sideline. Like his toe was in bounds and he got his heel up. So he did not step out of bounds. Didn't even know I wanted that angle. Didn't even know he was close to the sideline and boom, there it is. And you're going, oh, wow. That's wizardry right there. Yep. And if you watch Monday Night Football, especially during the Steve Levy years and before that, the Joe Tessitore years, it did not seem like it was produced on the level that the other broadcasts were. Just didn't. Didn't seem like it had new ideas. Didn't seem like it was just distinct. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to see if Monday Night can get to that level again. All of this is prelude to the fact they have a Super Bowl in 2027. Yeah. How about the Super Bowl of nonfiction books, David? One week from today, September 12th, yeah. the book Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson is coming out. Mm-hmm. Isaacson is the guy who brought you the book Steve Jobs. 
which also has a black and white cover with a tech genius placing his hands near his chin. Mm-hmm. Elon, Walter, Walter Isaacson has a type. You might say. Yeah. What should we know about the release of a mega nonfiction book or is an Isaacson mega book its own category? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there is a category for just like epic, epic books, right? I mean, just new setting epic books. It's sort of separate from anything else. It's very rare to get something that's both kind of quintessential and newsy um, with the exception of a handful of news magazine writers that, that write about current events, you know, they're, they're, that will grab, that will l- almost, you know, luck into a topic kind of as it's happening. This is a really, really rare occasion. I mean, the amount of time and care that Isaacson puts into his writing almost necessarily precludes a book being as newsworthy as this one is. And yet it's hitting at exactly the right time. Um, it, this is this is kind of, you know, this is one in a million. That said, uh, you know, it's a it's a seven hundred page book or something like that. It's incredibly long, and you know, there's no shortage of irony about the fact that this book is going to be consumed by the vast majority of people in like screen grabs posted on Twitter, right? <laughs> Yes. All of the juicy bits are just going to, and I'm sure Elon Musk doesn't care about it. He's not he's not in on the royalties or whatever. But all the juicy bits are going to be but, but I'm sure there'll be parts of the book that he's not going to be excited or out there and they'll be dis- disseminated on his platform. Isaacson will be losing money, Elon will be lo- will, will you know, be losing a little bit of credibility and it's all <laughs> just going to be it's all just going to be those like tweets with four separate screen grabs and a ca- and haphazard highlighting on on Twitter or X, I guess, but I'm not going to go there. I always wonder about that when these big books come out. Prince Harry's was probably the last nonfiction nonfiction book that was this big mm-hmm. or had this kind of anticipation. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the British tabloids are trying to get it. Everybody, you know, on Twitter is excerpting different things about, you know, Harry in the Arctic and all this stuff. And you're like, man, who's going to, you know, I felt like I read the book. I don't yeah. need to read the book. I'm sure everybody just skipped the book. And then you look and it just sold so many copies. Well, okay. So that's the thing about books. <laughs> books don't suffer as much as you would think. Uh, or or big books don't suffer as much as you would think from the, I saw everything in the trailer syndrome. Although I guess big movies don't either. You know, you can give everything away in the trailer and it's not like people are like, eh, I don't need to see Jurassic Park five or whatever. You know, it's mm-hmm. they people a lot of people are still gonna go. Um so I guess that is the same thing. Books are just not that many people buy books. I mean even the big books, it's not it's often not just an astronomical number. You can get to number one in the New York Times bestseller list without you don't have to sell 10 million copies or something to get there. You know, so if there's enough attention behind a book, if the publisher gets enough copies of the book into the Barnes and Noble, so everybody walking through is like, oh, there's that book that I've heard about. Maybe that would look good on my coffee table, you know, or it's not even that. I don't mean to be dismissive. It's like you buy a book. I bought I went to the bookstore this weekend, this used bookstore and bought 12 books, you know, like how many of those am I going to read this month? Well, maybe one or two. How many are going to get read ever if they last beyond the month? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Reading is a reading is a hypothetical endeavor as much as it is an active one. But um, but yeah, you can get you can sell tons of copies of books without even if there is a huge a huge element of market cannibalism. You know, I mean, you're still you you're still selling a lot. We I mean, we used to like publish, you know, the novel that a movie was based on, you know, that nobody cares about. And like the or like a, a, the novel that a movie was based on or whatever, the movie could under could flop, but the novel would still do really well because comparatively, you only need like a fraction of a of, of a mediocre movie audience to catapult a, bo- a book up the charts, you know. Totally. And there's so much awareness versus how many people would be aware of this novel, if not for the fact that there was a lousy movie coming yeah, out about and, it. And that's and and comparing it to a movie is the mugs game. You just compare it to with the next book on the shelf. Well, I'm doing a lot better than that one. The must thing is so amazing to me because it touches so many potential readers. As you said, this is a live news story. Mm-hmm. The biggest news story in tech, one of the biggest news stories in business. So you're getting people that are just really interested in current events. You're just getting people that are interested in him in particular, because he is just his own weather system. Mm-hmm. You're getting people that read Musk's, or excuse me, uh, Isaacson's bio of Steve Jobs and mm-hmm. are just like, oh, here is another Walter Isaacson book that I am very excited to read. I think I in f- this case, it legitimizes it more, you know, obviously, obviously legitimizes it, but it, but it legitimizes it as, as f- for a huge, for a percentage of the people you've already mentioned, right? It's, it's not just a, you know, grocery store checkout line. Elon Musk paperback, <laughs> or I guess in this day and age, it's the Elon Musk issue of People Magazine. I was going to say, we don't do the quickie bio anymore, but we do do a very special issue of life devoted yeah. to the career of Elon Musk. Got the PayPal years in there, got all the nice uh, pictures that we pulled from the wire service. Mm-hmm. There's also, and you and I have had people like this in our lives before, there's a certain kind of person who probably works in business, though they may work in other fields that wants to read the bio of the genius. Yeah, of course. To figure out how they made it so that they can look back at their own life and say, what can I learn from this Mm -hmm. about when, as I pursue my own career? Oh, absolutely. So there's that certain aspirational quality to a book like this. I mean, that's a lot of Elon Musk's charm at least in the pre-Twitter years, I think, more broadly, um, that sort of aspirational thing. There's also going to be, I mean, a not not entirely distinct, but, you know, another group of, of readers who just sort of want to keep up with the conversation, you know? I mean, we do this podcast. I've had numerous people when, you know, they're like, hey, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, Elon Musk and Twitter. And they're like, what's going on with that? You know, yes. like, expl- you know, a lot of people that are just sort of like, just kind of not avid Twitter users that just sort of hear about it echoing through rooms. And now this is, you know, a potential way in. And even the people that are avid Twitter users, they don't want to be left out of the conversation. So they'll be, yes. they'll, they might be picking up the book too. It's a 688 page explainer. Mm-hmm. If you don't know very much about Elon Musk and no shame if you don't. I was reading the excerpt, which ran in the Wall Street Journal. First of all, this book is going to be incredibly unique in the sense that Isaacson had unbelievable access to Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. And there are quotes in here that are like, Elon texted me in the middle of the night as he was thinking about buying Twitter. Yeah. 
it is a level of embedding that would even make Michael Lewis jealous with his upcoming book about Sam Bankman Freed. Yeah, mean, he is. He is there. There's also a certain like life of the tech billionaire quality, at least to the excerpt. Mm-hmm. Here's one couple of sentences. He then flew to Larry Ellison's Hawaiian island, Lanai. He had planned the trip as a quiet rendezvous with one of the women he was occasionally dating, the Australian actress Natasha Bassett. I mean, just lots of stuff like that where you find out what it is like to be Elon Musk, mm-hmm. which is separate but related to the whole aspirational quality of the book. Yeah. Then there, this book is also going to set a world record for wild quotes. This is one from the excerpt about what Musk calls the woke mind virus. Something I believe, David, you were diagnosed with a couple of months ago. Quote, unless the woke mind virus, which is fundamentally anti-science, anti-merit, and anti-human in general is stopped, civilization will never become multi-planetary, he told me gravely. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's the point all of us with the woke mind virus have been gathering in groups for years trying to keep people from exploring other planets <laughs> we like it on earth damn it um yeah it's this is this is going to be a weird one it is telling i mean it's not this is not shocking but it's interesting that that wall street journal excerpt is is potentially one of the juiciest parts of the book the twitter right? stuff and the twitter stuff I mean, that's what everyone's going to want to read. Now, Wall Street Journal might have been like, we don't really care about, you know, we don't want to pay you money to run it or so much money to run an excerpt about the PayPal years or whatever. But there are definitely sometimes books like this. They they will hold that in reserve. Right. And maybe mm-hmm. they start, they're probably still holding a lot in reserve. They couldn't possibly publish it all in the Wall Street Journal. And the, and the journals, obviously, you know, gets to choose their headline to make it seem as big as they want. But um yeah, they're just putting it all out there because they know that people will come to the book regardless. It's not that they don't care about how much you've already read. And if you go back and read this, I think you'll find that the even the journal excerpt about the Twitter stuff is pretty. It's it's a small part of what's got to be a huge part of the book. Mm-hmm. It feels very like we pulled a paragraph here. We pulled a paragraph here. We pulled one scene here. Feels like there's a much longer and juicier part to come. Anyway, I'm excited about this. I'm genuinely not excited in a podcast way where people are excited about everything, pumped up for everything. Yeah. I actually want to read this book. We might finally have another I read something. Yeah. Remember when we were we going to do that? I'm only excited in the podcast way. What'd you say? <laughs> for my part, I'm only excited in the podcast way. You don't want to I... read this? You don't no. want to read 688 pages? Uh. I'm. I was kind of joking, but I'm. Man, I am at that stage at at some stage of my life where I am a strictly paperback reader at this point. I'm. I'm actually the person. This is a, one of the hugest life shifts. September fifth, twenty twenty three. David has an announcement to make. He's only reading paperback. Sto- I will see a book in the bookstore and say I can wait a year till it comes out in paperback. <laughs> this is why I tried to get you excited about the European model, where the hardback and the paperback come out at the same time. Yeah, I know. And you can choose. And then David doesn't have to wait a year. You don't have to wait for video. I don't. If I really want it, I go digital rather than going hardcover. A lot of the time, I feel like I hardly know you anymore. I know it's crazy. A uh, couple of music notes for you. Oh, that's unusual. Okay, let's. <laughs> Noah Pransky is a correspondent at NBC News, and he set out to investigate one of these funny economic, and I use that term advisedly, stories you hear once in a while, which was that. 
Taylor Swift had generated $5 billion for the U.S. economy, as he put it. Mm-hmm. $5 billion economic impact for her era's tour. She's a job creator. She's a job creator. Now, you've seen stories like this before. Mm-hmm. Remember the one about how many man hours the U.S. economy lost because people were watching the NCAA tournament? Oh, yeah. I believe there was also one about how many avocados people eat on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> Whenever you see a story like that floating around, you should probably exercise maximum skepticism. Yeah, who planted that story? And Noah Pransky did some research. He was able to get a hold of the study, which turned out to not quite meet the level of rigor that we would want to declare that Taylor Swift had a $5 billion economic impact. (laughs) So he put all this out there, and then, guess what? He got swarmed by Taylor Swift fans. I was about to say, he better duck for coverage reporting on this. Yeah, who did not totally appreciate the level of scrutiny that he was applying, the fact-checking, important fact-checking that he was doing over for NBC News. Anyway, check it out on his Twitter feed. And speaking of music, David, were you anywhere near Twitter when Jimmy Buffett's death was announced? I was, yeah. On Friday night. Did you notice a lot of your favorite sports writers and sports commentators casting Jimmy Buffett as a kind of Ur-Jason Isbell of the press box? Yeah. Sam Farmer, who's the NFL reporter at the LA Times, said he was my Taylor Swift. Golly. Now, is that is that like a sports writer? Is there a sports writer Jimmy Buffett connection that's worth I, mining? Or is this well, like he did, sports he, he writer? He was a sports fan, you know, and I think that the, the Isbell comparison is telling. I haven't even read Harvella's piece on Jimmy Buffett yet, which I'm sure is going to be illuminating oh. and enlightening. Perfect guy but to read it. But, but with my much narrower worldview, there was an element of Jimmy Buffett where it was sort of like country music for people that didn't like to want to think they were listening to country music, you know? And that and that <laughs> coincides, as we know with Isbo, with a lot of the sports writing community. Mm. Um, All right, but, here we go. We, we The think piece is going. Keep going here. I like this. Uh, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, Buffett's, a, whatever. I mean, I cannot claim to be a big, Parrot head or even Buffett aficionado, although uh have stayed at Margaritaville Resort um and <laughs> recommend it to anyone that comes across one. This is the second big announcement on this pod, paperback books, <laughs> and now this. I didn't know that either. Uh uh it's it's a fantastic place to stay. I stayed when I went when I was down at um uh at Dollywood in Pigeon Forge. Wow. Um, you went to Dollywood but stayed at the Jimmy Buffett Resort? I don't think there's an official. Is there an official Dollywood Hotel? Well, there's like different. There, Dollywood's a little bit separate. You know, no, it's, but, you, from, but you went to visit Dollywood but then stayed at a, a branded hotel of another musician. Yes, correct. Just want to make Highly sure we're getting all that. Did you go to Toby Keith's I Love This Bar and Grill for lunch? No. <laughs> no, but we did go to... Um, uh, uh, Blake Shelton's Red Dog restaurant. For real? Uh, yeah. Re- <laughs> yes. For real. Absolutely for real. <laughs> this is this has been a great piece. 
It's a great place to visit. Notes. It's like it's it's like it's like uh, you know country music Disneyland. It's, you should, everybody should check it out. I was whenever I see like sports writers saluting somebody like Jimmy Buffett, I'm always like, is this is there really a connection here, or is it like sports writers love Bruce Springsteen? We're like, well, everybody loves Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that this is specific to sports writers, but I like your connection with country for people who don't love country. Speaking of Jimmy, we have an only in journalism submission sent in by listener Paul Henry. Ooh. This was the headline of the New York Times obit. Jimmy Buffett, roguish bard of island escapism, is dead. Roguish uh, bard. Yeah. That's a great one. Some more only in journalism via listener James Adair saw the coverage of Hurricane Adelia last week. He asked, why are hurricanes always lashing the coast of Florida? It's a good question. I did see a couple of instances of slamming into the coast of Florida, but lashing is definitely the word the press reaches for to describe hurricanes. We also got this one from Mr. Media X, famous reporter who's a listener of this show, prefers to be anonymous. You know how I love journalist euphemisms? Oh, yeah. When they see a piece from one of their colleagues and they say, quite the read from David Shoemaker. Or read David Shoemaker. Yeah. Which doesn't explicitly say the piece is good or even that they've read the piece necessarily. I guess quite the read. Kind quite of the read does imply it, but I think it just sort of, read, read Brian Curtis, read David Shoemaker was, is the, I didn't read this, right? But, but, he, but this person is always worth reading. Yes, or he's my friend and... And he'd be mad if I didn't tweet this. Quite the read should be read as I didn't read this piece either, but it's a lie that has the least on the line, right? It's not a lie that can be proven wrong, mm -hmm. you know? Brian Curtis Brian Curtis got real offensive about two-thirds of the way through this. That does, Quite the read doesn't ignore, ignore that fact. <laughs> <laughs> that Brian's going to get canceled for this one. Yeah. I always, I always see quite the read when it's a newspaper piece that's written in something slightly more interesting than newspaperese. Uh-huh. Like the person snuck a few adjectives past the copy desk or it's kind oh, of yeah. a mean story in a newspaper. Yeah. It's quite the read. It's not, it's not quite up to magazine level prose, but it's like really good newspaper prose or, or slightly spicy newspaper prose, as the kids like to say. That's quite the read. Yeah, and should be acknowledged different than quite the ride, right? <laughs> or, or <laughs> this piece is quite a ride. Yeah. Also, not necessarily a measure of quality. No, not at all. So, Mr. Media X, this famous reporter who prefers to remain anonymous, hits us with a podcast host euphemism. Oh. How do you read it when a podcast host ends an interview, often with another journalist or podcast host, by saying, This was fun? I'm so bad at outros. I have nothing to say here. Like when the thing when it's over, you're just like, uh, there's this sort of deflation. Eh, yeah, it was fun. This was fun. It that feels was... it feels yeah. There's a little bit of the we're, in, we're at the end of a one hour performance here. Yeah. So I'm just a little tired. But to me, I always hear a little bit of this was good, but it wasn't quite as great as it could have been. This was the fun. problem with podcasts, both for the, those of us that do it and the people listening to it, is that there's no not a real time constraint. I mean, I guess if you have a 
celebrity on. They might say you got 20 minutes. If you if you have if it's just a free flowing conversation, maybe your bosses say keep it under an hour or whatever. But sure. for the most part, it's you're never going to end a podcast interview with the sort of electricity of a TV interview where it's just like <laughs> we got 3 minutes and at the end it's oh we're just getting to the good part. Oh my god, that was so great. You know, like whatever. It, you it always it always winds down on its own and you're just sort of just sort of, you know, done by the end. Did Stephen A. tell Shannon this was fun <laughs> yesterday at the end of first take? After he called him Skip a couple of times? That was oh, funny, by man. the way. That was great. Speaking of features that are always fun, it's time for David Shoemaker. Guesses a strain pun headline. Yeah. Last Monday's headline about an accused NBA trader was Benedict Arnold. Today's headline comes to us from Joseph Bertolini. It's from Pod Save America, a podcast title at Pod Save America. Mm -hmm. It's about that Trump mugshot down in Georgia, David. Yeah. And how liberals feel about it. I don't want to say much more. What was Pod Save America's strain pun headline? Uh, liberal. Um, how liberals feel about it. Is it like, uh, I mean, liberals love it, obviously. Or yes. Kind of mm. smug, self-satisfied about it. Yes. Um, mm, they love, they love it and they love how left. Trump feels about it. They love taking stock of Trump's feelings about it. Oh, like, um, mm -hmm. what's the, the discomfort I, that it's causing Trump, the pain that it's causing Trump's fans. I literally can't think of this word. What is this word? The, 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 Schadenfreude? The, the Schadenfreude, right. Okay. Um, I know I, that's where I was trying to go. Uh, shot in Freud. Uh, yeah, it's it's a mug shot, so it's mug shot in Freud. Mug shot in Freud. That's that's shot in Freud. Shot in Freud. Mug shot in Freud. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Eduardo Ocampo. I'm back later this week with Press Box Final Edition. By the way, got yet another DM from people who are confused by Press Box Final Edition. Sometimes people think we're getting canceled. We're not getting canceled. This is not the last edition of the show. Just newspaper term. Yeah. You have your early edition, you have your final edition. We're now, it's like, it's like we're our grandparents talking about penny postcards. Press box, final edition, but not final edition, coming later this week. Shoemaker and I return with more lukewarm takes about the media on Monday. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, 
You don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. 